Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with the enigmatic John Hempton. Many of you will be familiar with John and his investing style of holding investments that he wants to hold for a long time, that he believes in the quality that will play out whilst shorting the stocks of companies where he thinks that villain scoundrels and bad performers are at work. We talked to John in this episode about his views of the market, which are quite perplexing to him and in bubble territory in many areas. We talk about GameStop, we talk about some of the shorting that's happening in the markets and the volatility that's going on. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It's always good to sit down with John and get his view of what's going on in markets. Please remember this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it, specific financial advice and people should be encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also seek financial advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. I enjoy it. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day. John Hempton, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Glad to be here. John, perhaps we could kick off, obviously, uh, at this point of recording, the markets have been somewhat astonishing uh, in their run. Um, obviously, the style of investor you are has been less than favourable. Maybe we can talk about, A, your performance of late and the broader performance of the market and what you think is going on. Let's talk about the broader performance first. This is most intense in the US. It's fairly intense in English language countries and much less intense in Europe. But what has happened since coronavirus is a large number of retail clients have opened bank interactive brokers accounts, Robinhood accounts, things like that. Um, in Australia, there's a lovely little statistic, just Comsec, which is the discount broker associated with Commonwealth Bank, opened 270,000 accounts in the, in the last reported six months. And 70% of those people are trading on, on apps, on phones, rather than on computers. This is a sort of gamification of trading. It's a very simple way of trading, but you, you can't be doing it with lots of information. You can't because phone has limited real, real estate. And if you look at Robin Hood and some of the interactions of that, it far more feels like a, a digital game. Yeah, it's far more extreme in the US. Robin Hood has got to the point that it's complete gamification of stock market. And there are millions of accounts. There, the rough figures are that 40 million Americans opened online accounts in the six months, you know, wow. since COVID to the end of the year. Um, now, anywhere where 40 million retail investors turn up all at once, you can assume that 39 and a half million of them will ultimately be shown to be dumb. Right? This is not, in the end, an easy game. It's also, in the end, a game with a lot of sharks that will want to separate you from your money. And you can't, and the skills that are necessary to do it well are built up over a lifetime. I'm going to confess that when I started opening an online account in the mid-90s, I was stupid too. And the only saving grace was that before the denouement, which came in 2000, I'd read enough history that I realised that I was being stupid and so I avoided the mistakes. But the people who joined 
the market in 98 and 99 and early 2000 generally didn't avoid the mistakes. Um, this sort of mass mania is a periodic thing in markets, but it's got bigger over time. There was a mass mania, for instance, when the railway was invented because it allowed people all across the country to speculate in ways that they hadn't speculated before. And you got a large number of people, particularly in the US, who suddenly speculated because they could have information at two days lag. There was obviously a mass mania in Australia in 1969. It's one of my all-time favourites. There's a lovely book on it called The Money Miners, which I recommend left, right and centre. What was that called again? It's The Money Miners by Trevor Sykes. And it's a book on the nickel boom. And I have recommended it so many times that the publisher has put it back into print. <laughs> right. um, it's one of the, you can now get one of those digital prints that obviously possible with small runs on computers, but it's a really nice book. And it's a book about the nickel boom and how crazy Australia became in the nickel boom. There was about three months where nickel stock prices displaced sports on the back page of the paper. And there were queues, five, six, seven people deep outside the stock exchange, wanting to look at the live prices with binoculars as they were written up on chalkboards. But this was a speculative mania that absorbed a very large part of the company and it ended very badly in tears. And in that case, like most speculative manias, there was something real at the beginning of it. The thing that was real at the beginning of it was the discovery of Cambolda, a very big nickel mine in West Australia, by a then penny stock called Western Mining. And Cambolda legitimately went from something like two cents to ten dollars and became a mining giant. It's now a very large part of BHP. But after something genuine happened, which created a lot of wealth, the mania got in, in and almost every other mining stock issued in that time went to zero. But, you know, Poseidon, which is the central stock of that boom, wound up with a market cap many times the price market cap of Western Mining. Um, was by far the biggest stock on the exchange. It went to zero. The mine um, never got never got um, developed, though quite, quite amusingly that mine has now been reverse merged into another penny stock that's hyping literally the Poseidon deposit again. Um, but we are at that sort of stage where there's a mass mania. And we've seen they happen every 20, 30 years. As an investment professional, you might see two in your lifetime. You have a very long career if you see three in your lifetime. The um, last one, of course, was the dot-com bubble, where you had E-Trade and the online brokerage accounts advertising very heavily. And the famous ads with a baby, you know, tr pu pushing the typewriter and on the, you know, this keyboard and making lots of money and it was so easy that a child could do it and of course that ended in tears too but also of course there was some real stuff at the bottom of it right um, the internet wasn't all bullshit right it turned out to be really important in the world and if you bought the top internet stocks you dropped 80% on the downturn but you're up a long long way now but if you bought internet stocks numbers 10 to 30 you probably got zero for most of them. So this feels a little bit different in something like GameStop, which has been a mania, 
and it might be helpful for you to explain to the listeners Ooh, what you think okay. has happened in that area. But I'm not sure the business model of GameStop is seen no, as an Amazon of the world. No, the GameStop is, I, I, GameStop in a small picture really doesn't matter. It's a tiny stock on which some people made a billion dollars and some people lost a billion dollars. It was a mass retail mania. There's a survey, which I'm not sure that I believe, but it's order of magnitude, right, that suggests that more than 10% of Americans bought GameStop stock in January, which is mass mania stuff. Now, it turns out that that same survey suggested that the average, they, the median spend was about $20. So what they were buying was fractional shares of GameStop on a gaming app called Robinhood. Right. The average Robinhood, the median Robinhood account is only $250. Right. You have to think of Robinhood as a bit like a sports betting account rather than a bit like a stockbroking account. Mm -hmm. But millions and millions of people bought GameStop and almost all of those have, have been dudded. At the heart of GameStop were some people who learned how to game that system. I don't know what GameStop is worth. I don't think it's worth zero. I think there might be some future for the business. Um, and it was priced at the bottom as if it were worth zero. But I can tell you for sure that it wasn't worth $400 a share. Right? This was just some kind of crazy game, game, gambling mania at the end. But there's a second part to the story, and this is going to require a little bit of maths. So I'm going to divert into financial maths and I'm going to lose some people. We'll try to try stay and, with you. I'll try, I'll try and explain it as simply as possible. There are in markets options, right? And, you know, you can buy an option to purchase GameStop share. GameStop is currently about $49 a share. Um, you can buy an option to purchase it at $100 in a week's time if you want. And once upon a time, those option markets existed, but they were not very liquid. If you went in there and bought $100 worth of options, somebody would write them to you. If you were to buy $100,000 worth of options, the person writing them to you would think, oh my God, he's an insider trader. He's got inside information. I'm not selling those options. And so those option markets were mostly for show. Then, but you can hedge those options all mathematically using some methods I'll explain in a second. And the, one of the dominant themes of the last 10 years is the rise and then rise some more of mathematical finance and people who trade with computers using maths. And so once where option markets weren't very liquid, now our option markets are extremely liquid. If you wanted to buy options over a billion dollars worth of Allianz stock, you probably could. My lord, I wish I did, right? I only bought options over a quarter of a billion. It was the best trade of my life. But that market never existed before. Right Now, the fact that that market exists now, plus a gamification culture, means that all the people who are treating this as a betting app have moved into options. And it's an astonishing number to us, but the amount of retail money spent on option premium in the US is now approaching $10 billion per week. Right? This is an absolutely frightening sum. Now, I'm going to explain a little bit of option maths. 
Suppose Apple shares are currently $100 and I write you an option that says I'm going to sell them to you for $110 in three months if you want. Well, there's a probability that I'm going to have to deliver them to you. That probability is less than 50%, right? It um, might be 20%. It turns out that the, the right mathematical hedge for me to do is to buy, buy Apple shares at the rate of the probability that I'll have to deliver them to you. So I buy, if I sell you an option over 100 shares, I'll buy 20. If Apple shares go up, there's going to be a chance that I have to deliver. The chance that I have to deliver will go up. It might be 25%. If they go to, say, 150, the chance that I'm going to have to deliver is 90%. But as they go up, the chance I have to deliver goes up. And the formula says if I want to hedge it, I have to buy some more Apple shares. And as they go down, the chance I have to deliver goes down, and the formula says I have to sell some Apple shares. And I don't know where Apple shares are going to go, but I know they're going to go be volatile. They're going to go up and they're going to go down. And every time they go up, my hedging formula says I have to buy some Apple shares. And every time they go down, my hedging formula says I get to sell some Apple. I have to sell some Apple shares. And if you notice something here, I'm going to be buying high and selling low. Because right, I buy when they go up and I sell when they go down. And buying high and selling low doesn't work very well on Wall Street. You tend to lose money. Actually, you lose a bit. if I've done this right, the amount that I lose should be the theoretically pure option premium. And this is how the option formula works. It tells me how to hedge the, hedge the shares. I buy high and I sell low. I lose money. I lose an amount of money that equals the option premium. If I can sell you option premium for more than that amount of money, I should be able to hedge it and make a profit. And I'll be wrong if the volatility is wrong. Okay, so now you have all these people buying options. And they're buying calls. They're out-of-the-money calls. So they, they, you know, they're buying Apple, Apple calls at 110 when Apple's only 100. Mm -hmm. But when they buy the call, they're paying only a dollar or two of premium. And I'm having to buy $20 worth, 20 shares, right? So they get a lot of leverage. And as the stock goes up, I have to buy more and more and more. And so when there's massive amounts of option premium, you can have the market makers chasing themselves all the way up. And this is what is called the gamma squeeze. And the gamma squeeze is a feature of the modern market for highly liquid retail names. And one of the things that we've done at Bronte to try and avoid risks of this is that we've worked out the gamma, implied gamma squeeze on every short in our portfolio. And there are stocks that we will not have a short position in, even though we think they're worthless. And we think they're completely crazy retail stocks because the gamma is too high. And I'll give you an example of one we've never had a position in I never particularly want a position in, which is a company called Beyond Meat. Mm -hmm. And Beyond Meat have a real product. The real product is a meat burger made out of vegetables that tastes pretty like a good hamburger. It's not the only one. There are several copies on the market, and they're all priced crazily. Beyond Meat missed its sales very badly last quarter. They said that was because of COVID stocking up 
etc. So all the consumers had full freezes. But to be blunt, if this is meant to be a hyper-growth company, it shouldn't have negative sales growth just because there was a freezer stock up. You know, these things get consumed. And besides, if you're at home, aren't you cooking your burgers? You're not going out to dinner, right? So th that explanation didn't make much sense. The stock is priced at 27 times revenue. Now, that's not 27 times profit. That's 27 times revenue. There isn't any profit. Now, 27 times revenue is a number that it's crazy to pay for almost anything unless it's got very high growth. But it missed its revenue totally. It doesn't have any growth at all. It's a completely crazy valuation, but I'm not prepared to short it, and I'm not prepared to short it because if you look at the option market, the amount of gamma in the stock is astonishing. If the stock were to double, our calculation is that the market makers would have to buy 27% of the company. Now you could get this really weird effect where the stock goes up and the market makers buy some more and the stock goes up further and the market makers buy some more and at some point you've got GameStop. Right? Now this is but this is also, you know, some sense of how crazy this retail market is, which is that it's so, it's been so gamified that it's possible for retail investors to buy $10 billion worth of retail stocks per week, or retail gamma, you know, options per week. And what is the really crazy thing is whilst they've been buying options at sort of implied volatilities of 200, and the market makers who have been writing the options to them have been making a lot of money and delta hedging, we actually don't think the people buying the options have lost a lot of money, right? So. One of those tells that we're sort of wondering is when do the retail clients of the Robinhoods stop wanting to buy options? And the answer is, of course, when they start losing some money, but we don't know when that is. Um, but GameStop is, in some sense, the most extreme version so far of the retail gamification of markets. And we fortunately were not short GameStop. It's not normally what we do. It's a real business that's declining. We tend to short fake businesses or real crappy, you know, frauds. But had we been shorted, we would have been short our usual 20 bips or something, and we might have lost 2 or 3% of the fund. Not the $5 billion that one no, hedge fund manager lost, which well, was, what, 30 40% of their fund. Yeah, I think he probably lost less on GameStop and more on other things. Mm -hmm. But part of the problem he had, and this is actually a generalized problem, is that he was short a whole lot of names that also a lot of other hedge fund managers were short. And so what happened was when GameStop went up, he was forced to buy back stock. And he didn't just buy back GameStop, he had to buy back stock across his whole portfolio because he was becoming very leveraged. Um, actually, it's fairly easy to ex explain what his portfolio looked like. There's a single trade that has worked for the last 10 years. I would associate it with Druckenmiller, but you could also associate it with the long end of it with ARK. And you could certainly associate it with um, Mr. Plotkin and Melbourne Capital. And that is the idea of being long the future, short the past. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a sensible position for an investor manager over time. So in the, along the future, short the past thing, you would own 
Booking.com and Amazon, but you would short Dillard's and Macy's, and you'd short their landlords like Masserich. And if you had to look at it, you'd say, well, GameStop looks awful like the past in that. And if you have a look at, and, and we didn't do well on our short book last year, but it turns out that the only strategy on short book that worked really well last year was short the past. And so there were several funds who were long the future, short the past, four times leave it. And they had astonishing numbers, 40-50% per year compound. And in that long the future, short the past, they had a position in GameStop because it's the past. You know, you walk into EB Games, which is the Australian version of GameStop, and there might be a sort of desultory customer looking around at DVDs of games, but these days, you know, the games are downloaded. Sure, right? it's a bit like Video Easy. Right, yeah, it's gone. It, it, it's gone. But so long that so in a lot, and if you have a look, what moved that GameStop week? Well, Dillard's was up like twenty percent, and Macy's was up like thirty percent, but even Masserich was up. Now, you won't know Masserich, but think of it as a sort of bad second-tier landlord, right? Think, you know, Westfield is a first-tier landlord. There mm -hmm. are, think of somebody running third-tier shopping centres in a REIT, right? You know, if you're, if you're short Dillard's and Macy's and GameStop, you're also short their landlords, right? Mm -hmm. And so what their position was, was leveraged long the future, short the past. Perfectly good trade, just don't lever it with a position in GameStop that went completely crazy. Now, there are a couple of reasons why we would have lost less money. The first one is our book is far, far more diversified than that, right? In that, yeah, we're occasionally short the past, but we're not five times lever to short the past. The second is that we are very, very skittish when it comes to losses. The number of times that we have covered a stock and lost money. The number of times that we have had a stock that went from 10 to zero, or let's make it more realistic, eight to, 8 to zero via 191, that was what happened to us on Wirecard, right, um, is quite large. And we're not religiously addicted to any shorts, so we will, we will just take our lumps. Now we've been taking more lumps than normal lately, a lot more lumps than normal. And what does that performance look like over the last couple of months in February to date, oh, for instance? Look, February to date's about flat. January was horrible. December was horrible, right? And these our, probably our, would have been the biggest drawdowns you've experienced. Yeah, this is the, the, by far the worst period I've ever experienced. Um, our basic shtick is find crooks and people who sell things to retail investors and short a little bit of them. And normally it works just fine, right? But suddenly we found not 10 times as many retail investors, but maybe 40 times as many. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work fine at all now, right? It's been a very good way to lose money. And we've had to cover lots and lots of positions. And to be frank, the, the job at the moment is not to make money. The job at the moment is to avoid the stampede and and have the positions left when the market turns and to try and work out what the turn is. So you're convinced the model isn't broken forever? I'm convinced of that, but I'm also convinced that I have to deal with the current reality. Mm -hmm. 
There's no way that 40 million retail investors have just come along and found a perpetual gold machine. Mm -hmm. Right? This does not exist. They can't all be right and they can't all get rich. Right? There, there is not enough productive capacity in the world to solve the problem of making them all rich. We have no doubt about that. Right? I mean, maybe, maybe we're wrong and somebody invents you know, a dematerializing machine on Star Trek that um, <laughs> creates instant wealth for anybody that wants it. Right? But shy, shy of that, there's no way that their collective expectations can be met. This market will end. Right? Whether it ends this month, next month, or in five years' time, I do not know. And if it's five years' time, I'm going to say that, well, you know, it does look rather broken. Right? Um, at some point or other, we will retreat to nothing in that case, you know, right? We don't think it's five years. If you go read, say, The Money Miners, the period at which the stock market was exciting enough that people wanted to queue outside the stock exchange with binoculars to read the chalkboard was only a few months. We're a few months in now. We had a bit of a hiccup last week where two or three days the retail mania crowd started losing money and then Friday it bounced again and I felt miserable. <laughs> right? But at some point it's going to end. Um, and John, I think you've identified a trading idea around a large manager overseas that's well, attracting lots and lots of retail money. We, Do you want to talk us through that? Some of it, no. Right. Um, Only what you can and what you're comfortable. Well, we're, one of the things that we're trying to do is to work out who buys this crap. So we have, bio, I, we have biotechs that we think are real and biotechs we know that are fraudulent. And the ones that are fraudulent have gone up further than the ones that are real. And every now and again we find a fund manager whose portfolio is full of this crap and we trade against them. The last really good example was an English fund manager called Woodford. <laughs> and Woodford had one of the best records in UK funds management. The phrase, you know, the Warren Buffett of England used to be associated with him. He eventually went, went out on his own and the portfolio wound up being 50 or 60% full of frauds. It was an absolutely astonishingly awful portfolio. If you're an Australian investor, you might know it because um, Link Group, the Australian share registry and sort of back office company, was actually the back office for Woodford and they eventually put him out of business and they're being sued by Woodford and Woodford, right? And there's a whole lot of Woodford-related legal costs going through their accounts. But Woodford was spectacular. And when it imploded, you could sort of see the process and you just shorted everything in his book. And everything we touched Woodford Associated made us money. And our lesson was that we probably should have done it at five times the size because whilst we made money on it, it was like only about 3% of the fund and it was one of the best trading ideas in recent times. We actually have a collection of fund managers that look like that, some very big, some less big. I really don't want to name them because if mm. I'm going to suggest that they're the next Woodford... And the I'm growth probably, of some of these oh, managers has just been phenomenal. But the growth phenomenal. of Woodford was fantastic, right? 
One of the beautiful things about buying small cap frauds in quantity is that you buy them, the price gets bid up. You wind up being one of the best performed fund managers. More money flows into you, you buy more of them, the price gets bid up. We have seen fund managers mark their book many times. One of those questions I asked, I, there was a fund manager in Australia where there was an insider trade, trading case, and the insider trading case involved the staff member telling another person that they were buying stock. And they were buying so much of it that they moved the price 20%, which made it good to insider trade. And my reaction is, that's disqualifying for a fund manager, right? Because at that point, you know you're marking your book, right? Well, marking your book has become really common in small cap crack land, right? And the retail investors are completely indifferent to the idea that the fund manager that they're pouring the money into is marking their book. This is just Woodford Mark II, three, four, five, where I don't really want to name the fund managers because I could be wrong about some, and also some of them are more complicated than that, which is, you know, there's a fund management umbrella where there's a, a fund management umbrella like Colonial Group, and there are 15 funds in it, and four of them are suspect, mm -hmm. right? And the umbrella might not, and Colonial Group's not my example, but the umbrella might not know that four of them are suspect, right? So if I named them, I, I could be smearing the wrong people as well. But the idea of mass retail flows and marked books is an idea that pops up again and again and again. In Australia, years ago, people might remember Greenchip. Right? Greenchip was a fund manager that explicitly bought all these small cap stocks that they counted as the future. And it was a beautiful buy tomorrow sort of sell story. And Greenchip, when the flows stopped, the small cap stocks that they owned dropped 90%. Now, I don't know whether that was malfeasance or just negligence, right? But the effect was the same, which is that it flows were good and they bid up the stock price and then flows became bad and then that collapsed the stock price, right? And this is a repeating theme in funds management and we're seeing it on a grand scale at the moment. So, John, in wrapping up, what would your advice be and thoughts be to clients and advisors out there working through this market at the moment where I think you're right at the retail end of things, there's lots and lots of, and particularly in the US probably even more, okay. new but, investors who think they can do this better and they're sitting on six months of gains that look fantastic. For clients, that's easy, right? Just don't risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need, right? Pick up a history book. I don't care whether it's the money miners or all the devil, right? You know, all the devils are, no, not that one. There's a book about devil take the hindmost or half a dozen books about bubbles in the past. The go-go years is one of my recent favorites. And just realize that you're in one of those manias and that the goal at this time is to protect what you have and need, not to try and get rich. There will be a time when everybody is miserable and the goal at that time is to try and get rich and take whatever you right, and just go over weight equities or whatever. But at the moment, the, t the job is survival. For a, for a financial planner, that or um, that's a harder thing. 
because you're guaranteed to look like an idiot. These periods are full of career risk, right? If you do not participate now, you look like you underperform and money will leave you and your business will get less good. And if you do participate now, there is no way you're getting off the train at the end and you're going to cart your clients down. You have no choice at this point but to look like an idiot. You just don't know when you're going to look like an idiot. There's not much a financial planner can do to save their business now. If their business is problematic because of that, it's problematic. You can solve that long term by educating your clients. You can say what you do, you can talk to them honestly, you can make, make sure that they're aware of the risks of the market, right? And hopefully most of them don't leave you. And when I talk to really good financial planners, and I know a few, I ask them the question, you know, how many clients have you lost? And they'd say one or two or three. And if I talk to very ordinary middle market financial planners, it's 15 or 20, right? There's no solution in the short term to this problem, right? If the client's determined to go out and leave you, the client's determined to go out and leave you. There's a solution in the long term, which is to educate your clients and have good clients and offer a pro consistent product and make sure. And I'm going to plead the case of a, of a good financial planner now, right? Because that's what they'll do for you, right? They'll just keep you away from the sort of white heat of the moment. But there should be a time also where you probably want to go towards the white heat and most good financial planners are actually not very good at that, right? But at the moment, there's no solution for an individual, just be careful out there. And for a financial planner, keep telling the clients the truth, but it's late in the cycle and they'll do what they want to do. John Hampton, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.